Hello and welcome to a quick tour around the universe. It's the first episode of December. I hope your holiday season has started very science-y, because this is the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Every week we come together to explore the solar system and see what science secrets are lurking nearby. And there's a lot packed into this week. So strap yourself in. We're learning about why chimps walk together. So closely they mimic each other's footsteps and they fall into line. Why does that happen? You can find out with the genius Manon Schweinfurt. Even when researchers told participants to not fall into the same rhythm, the participants couldn't help it. And so we thought, well, that is such a simple form. Let's look at other animals, whether we would find at least such a simple form. Also, we're back with Amy's aviation this week. For the last few months, Amy has been teaching us all about planes, how they take off, what they're made of, how they stay in the air. This time, we're headed into space. On the International Space Station, astronauts spend much of their time keeping it in tip-top condition, both inside and outside. Almost daily, they take spacewalks to tidy up. And I've got your questions to answer, as always. This week, they are on cats and dogs and how they see and also roller coasters roller coasters being really fast it's on the way in a brand new fun kids science weekly let's kick things off with your science in the news so a replica of what might be the largest animal to ever walk on land is coming to london next year it's a sauropod dinosaur known as Patagotitan. It's at the Natural History Museum through 2023. Get this, it's 35 metres, nose to tail. In real life, it would have weighed about 60 tonnes and it's based on fossils found in Argentina, South America, eight years ago, where scientists discovered the dino bones from 100 million years ago. How amazing is it that there are experts all over the world still digging and still finding completely new dinosaurs that we never knew existed? You've got a chance to see it in London next year. Also, gardens and wildlife have been bursting back into life because of quite a warm November. Flowers and plants are going into what scientists say is a second spring because it's been much hotter than usual at this time of the year. Experts say it's strange for plants to act like this, with roses and fuchsias speeding up when they should be slowing down over the winter. This is really hard to get your head around because it might look nice, it might look pretty, but it's because of climate change and these little impacts can have massive effects on the ecosystem because insects other animals might not be around to eat when they normally are and this could have devastating consequences finally this week a mars rover called rosalind franklin might now go to the moon we've spoken about rosalind franklin on this show a little bit it was built over the last few years to head to mars but because of the war in ukraine it couldn't take off on a russian rocket but now thanks to money from the european space agency it's not going to go to a museum it won't be retired but it might actually fly through space before 2030 it's hard to get your head around everything that's happening up in space hopefully we're sending humans back there soon and this is another step on the way let's jump into it with curious kate then for the last few weeks we've been catching up with kate who's very interested she is curious she is curious kate she's always asking the big questions about how things work with energy electricity and with power we've heard about a few of those so far this week kate is exploring water and the energy that we get from the oceans 
Curious Kate in association with British Gas Generation Green. That sounds like my big brother Tom hanging out in the garden. I love it when he's home from uni because I get to find out about all the cool stuff he's been learning. Hey, Kate, have you seen this new water feature I'm putting in for Mum? Oh, a little rockery with a stream and... What's that? A little spinning wheel. Is that run by a battery? It's a little water mill. There's no battery. The current of the stream is turning it round. In actual fact, water's so powerful it can generate electricity. Really? Yeah, it's called hydroelectricity. It's produced when water flows through a turbine, turning large blades round to generate electricity. Wow! But why do they use water to make electricity? Is it a bit like solar energy? Because it will never run out? That's totally right. Both hydro and solar energy are renewable energy sources. But what water do they use? They don't use the water in our local swimming pool, do they? No, silly. They have to use running water and fast running water at that. When water flows downhill, as all rivers do, it has a huge amount of potential energy. Hydropower systems convert this potential energy into another kind of energy called kinetic, which drives a generator to produce electricity. As a rule of thumb, the more water there is and the greater the height it flows from, the more electricity can be generated. Cool. So our house could be water-powered. I guess people have always used water to power things. Bang on! Do you remember on holiday last year when we saw a house next to a river with a big wheel attached to its side? Yeah, it looked really old. That's because it was. It was a water mill and 100 plus years ago that water wheel would have powered a mill inside the building to grind grain into flour. Water power has even been used to power huge pumps to remove water from deep mines. Just imagine that, using water to get rid of water. We've always known that water has a lot of power. It's just what we do with that power that makes it useful. I know. Do you remember those massive waves at the beach? They were great, if a bit on the scary side. Too true. But do you know you can produce energy from waves and the tides? Really? Tides move a huge amount of water in and out twice each day. And the power of this tidal water can produce electricity. But if tides only happen twice each day, that can't produce that much energy. That's one of the drawbacks to tidal energy. It can only be produced when the tide is coming in or out, and therefore not at high and low tide when there is little flow of water. Some tidal schemes are like wind turbines, big blades which lie horizontally in the water and spin to turn a generator. Another type under development is a tidal barrage. This is like a dam that spans a river estuary. When the tide goes in and out, water flows through the turbines in the barrage. Anyway, I'd better finish putting in this water feature. Oh, Tom, just one more thing. Hmm? How much potential energy do you reckon is in this sprinkler? <laughs> Curious Kate, in association with British Gas Generation Green. How curious are you? Test your curiosity at www.generationgreen.co.uk forward slash curiosity. You can hear more from Curious Kate next week on the show uh, with another form of energy. Right now, let's answer some of your questions. I love this part of the podcast where you send over your questions and I do the digging. I spend all week looking up the answer for you. 
One of the ways you can send in a question is through Apple Podcasts. That's what Jack has done, who is 10. He's from Aberdeen in Scotland. Thank you for this, Jack. You want to know why do roller coasters get so much speed at the start? Well, roller coasters get speed normally in two different ways. They either use gravity, which is kind of old school now, you know, where you are winched to the top of a huge hill by a chain. It takes forever to crawl up and then you go over the hill and then you hurtle the other side when gravity takes over. That's normally quite a slow start, isn't it? When you creep up the hill. Over the last 10, 15 years or so, there's been another way of making roller coasters race at the very beginning using something called hydraulics. That's when a lot of gas gets squeezed into a tiny amount of space. There's a lot of pressure in there. It's bursting to get free. And then when it gets released, it powers a motor. The force of the gas makes the motor turn. It makes it push off. Then a cable is attached to the car that you're into on the roller coaster That goes to the motor, and when all that gas gets released, it's at such a huge force, it flings the car along the track, propels it like a slingshot, and it makes it get extremely fast right at the beginning, Jack. Thank you for the question. Now, one of my favourite ways you can send over a question helps you star in the show. Just by recording yourself on a phone, tablet, whatever it is, then firing it over as a voice note to me on the free Fun Kids app. That's what Maggie does. Let's have a listen. My name is Maggie and I am eight and I'd like to know, can cats and dogs see in colour like humans? Thank you for that, Maggie. So yes and no. They can see in colour, but not like humans. Colour is our brain's way of processing different light waves. We've got little receptors in the back of our eyes and they recognise one light wave as one colour and another light wave as a different colour, and so on and so on, right the way through the spectrum. Now, humans have three cone cells in their eyes. They are the little things that understand light waves. We've got one for red, one for blue, and another for green. Now, dogs just have two of those cone cells for blue and red. That means that dogs can see in colour, but they don't understand all of them like, like we do. They have to kind of figure it out, like patch them together. They're a bit colour blind. Uh, and interestingly for me, I'm quite colourblind too. It means that one of my receptors doesn't really work, so the other two have to work together to figure out what I'm seeing. Now that works if um, red and green are separate, but if they're squashed together, my eyes don't really know what to do because the one that was picking up the green now has to deal with the red and it's all a bit of a mess and that's how you get colourblind. It's the same for dogs. Uh, cats have the same amount of cone cells that we do, so they can see colour but they don't work quite as well as ours. But what they do have is brilliant night vision. They have things in their eyes which let them see very clearly when it's dark, which helps them hunt in the evening. Maggie, thank you for the question. If there is anything that you want answered on this show, get your phone or tablet out. Maybe you can borrow your mum or dad's because it's absolutely free. Record a voice note and send it through to the Free Fun Kids app. All right, then, let's do this week's Dangerous Stand, where we look at some of the most mean, wicked and strange things in the universe. Uh, This week, we are headed to the insect world for a creature that has a name worthy of the Dangerous Stand list. It is the Devil's Flower Mantis. It's a mantis, so that's a long creature. Looks a bit like a grasshopper mixed with a butterfly, really. It's got long, spindly legs. They're brightly coloured as well. They can be red, white, blue, purple, and black all over. They're found around Africa and are probably the largest species of praying mantises. 
They've got thick, strong legs, sharp mandibles. Those are the claws that they use to strike and eat. And how they do it is amazing. They get their name because they are the largest species, really, that mimics flowers. It will fly onto a flower petal and then using its bright, striking colours completely blends in to that flower. They become camouflaged, almost invisible, and they lie in wait. And they wait and wait until a fly or a moth or perhaps a beetle gets onto the flower and then it pounces. It wraps its legs tightly around the prey using its mandibles to strike, to stun, and then they get their meal. It's a deadly game of patience, of waiting, of blending in before your prey thinks you're just a regular flower when actually you're a brutal devil's flower mantis. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, have you... I'm James Stewart, and in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. Led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. (laughs) This is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever noticed that when you walk near someone, or maybe three, four people, you might start to match their footsteps? You walk in time with them, right? Turns out it's not just humans that do this. Chimpanzees do it too. And we can find out more with Dr. Manon Schweinfurt, who has researched this. She is a lecturer in the School of Psychology and Neuroscience in St. Andrews. Manon, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. So what made you first start looking into the way that chimpanzees walk? Oh, that was actually a funny coincidence. So I was at an interdisciplinary meeting so where researchers from different areas discuss science with each other. And I just mentioned this observation that I had that when chimpanzees walk next to each other, they seem to walk in sync. And then cognitive psychologists that were super baffled about it. And so then we decided we should do a study on this. And so I guess that's how it all started. So you're a lecturer in the School of Psychology and Neuroscience. That's all to do with how our brains work and think, not just personally, but also as a massive group. With humans, before we get to the chimps, how much do we know about why humans start to synchronise their walks with other people? We don't know a lot about it. I guess that's that's so interesting. We know that we coordinate actions all the time, you know, sometimes in fairly complex ways, when we dance together, when we do music together. But it's also part of our everyday life. So when we are moving items together, we need to make sure that we are not moving too fast or too slow. And we coordinate our actions. So and, and we haven't really figured out what the mechanisms are. And some of them are really simple, like as you've described when you're walking next to others, that you just tend to fall into the same rhythm of people walking next to you. And interestingly, studies have found that even when researchers told participants to not fall into the same rhythm, the participants couldn't help it. And so we thought, well, that is such a simple form. Let's look at other animals, whether we would find at least such a simple form. But we haven't really understood all the psychological mechanisms yet, I'm afraid. Now, as someone interested in psychology and an expert like you are, this might be a question that you don't like. But is it is it something that we're doing 
intentionally or non-intentionally, or is it? Could it just be that it's statistics? There are only so many ways that people can walk. They either go right foot first or left foot first, and do, do we not just kind of fall in time naturally because of the odds on how many different ways there can be to walk? You're absolutely right. And that was actually a crucial control condition that we did with our chimpanzees. So we not only looked at their walking behavior when they were walking with others, but we also looked at their walking behavior when they were alone, just walking all by themselves. And then we combined walking behaviors of two individually walking behavior, just, you know, as a statistical test. And what we found was that the time in between placing the same respective foot, let's say the right foot, which was much longer and much more varied when, than in comparison to when they were walking with someone. And when they were walking with someone, you know, in almost 80% of the cases, they placed the same respective foot in less than half a second in comparison to their partner. And so, but you are absolutely right. There are only so many ways how you can walk. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we did find that, you know, the chimpanzees adjusted their behavior. We also saw, for instance, that they sl- the bigger ones slow down for the smaller ones and so on. Let's talk about how you did the study. It must be quite hard to get chimpanzees and make them do something that you want them to do. I mean, they can be quite chaotic animals. How did you (sighs) undertake this study? Where did you do it? How many chimpanzees did you use? How did you know what they were doing? Take us through that. That's an excellent question. So I work in collaboration with a sanctuary that is called Chimfunchi. And Chimfunchi is one of the largest chimpanzee sanctuaries of the world. So they take care of orphanage chimpanzees and then bring them into large social groups where they can live a happy life. And so I had the advantage of working with um, almost 30 animals for this study. What did, what did you find with numbers? So if there's two chimpanzees walking next to each other, will they bother keeping their feet in time? Does it take loads more? Or when you've got a massive troop of chimpanzees, do they not really bother about trying to match footsteps like just work us through some of the findings yeah so we we mostly looked at diets so that means when two individuals are walking next to each other it gets a bit messier when there are several chimpanzees and what we see is that that's usually a different context so our male chimpanzees for instance coordinate their actions when they are doing border patrols. So they walk around the enclosure and make sure that their territory is fine. So and we were we were concerned that that's a little bit of a different situation than when they were just, you know, like randomly walking next to others. We basically video recorded their behavior. We looked at them every day. We observed them while they were naturally behaving in their enclosure. And as you uh, said previously, Chimpanzees are very chaotic. They are. And there is usually a lot going on. So we were there standing patiently and looking out for situations where we could either see them walking completely alone or with others. And so this is how we collected our data. In total, we were there for three months observing them every day. And why do you think they do it then? Why, when two chimpanzees are walking together, will they deliberately change the way that they're or is it even deliberate actually Manon because when humans do it 
When I'm walking next to someone, I don't think, you know, I'm going to walk in time with that person. Do they even know that they're doing it or is it at a much deeper level, I guess? I think it's a letter. I think it's probably not something that they are really conscious about. So probably it works in a very similar way like we do it. So it's not like something that we consciously do. We just tend to fall into the same rhythm. And so that's why we were a bit concerned if we would be looking at border patrols where they are consciously doing something with others, right? That might be a little bit of a different situation. And so we wanted them to just, you know, walk around with their enclosure and see what they would be doing. Obviously, it's really difficult if you are working with animals and you, are, you can't ask them why they're doing it. But it all looks like very similar to how we are doing it. So, yeah, we don't know how how exactly they're doing it, but it looks very, very similar to how humans do it. They also fall sometimes in and out of that rhythm. So because, you know, maybe there is something in their way and they need to jump over something or they are walking around something. So they fall a bit out of that synchrony. But then, you know, once they are walking with the others again, they are falling into that synchrony again. And maybe it's just something that they enjoy, you know. We know that humans do quite a lot without realizing to um to to almost stay with uh, their own kind and people who are like them I, I was we were learning the other day that you're much more likely to be friends with someone if you smell like them and we we do so much and we we when when we're talking to each other we match how fast we're talking, how high and low our pitch is. And that slightly explains why we might want to walk at the same pace as someone. Have you, although you might not properly know, as a scientist, do you have any idea why chimpanzees might fall into the same time without realising it? It's difficult to say, really. We've had a couple of hypotheses. So we thought um, maybe they are more synchronised with other chimpanzees that they like. Right. So we quantified who are they friends with, um, but we didn't see any differences in that either. So then we looked at, well, maybe they are more coordinated with someone. And then afterwards, as a result of that coordination, they might engage in other pro-social behaviors, like they would be more likely to groom the, the walker or, um, or, or, you know, like sit next to them. But we also couldn't find anything in there. So I guess I think the take-home message is we don't know, unfortunately. We've tried a couple of things, but it seems like it's not that they are more coordinated with friends or that as a result of an enhanced coordination, they engage more in prosocial behaviors afterwards. So, But that leaves a lot of room for future scientists to look at this again and expand it. That's brilliant. That's the point, isn't it? We don't know why they're doing it. They just do. And we're going to keep asking questions. That is what is so brilliant about science. <laughs> it's been a real joy to chat to you. Dr. Manon Schweinfurt, thank you so much for joining us. Before we go this week... Let's check in with Amy's Aviation. This is a series we've been following for the last couple of months now. Amy loves everything about planes. She knows how they're made. We've heard about that, how they take off, where they get their power from, the differences between paper planes and regular planes, wooden planes and metal planes. We find out how they stay in the air. This week, we're looking about the many jobs that pilots and astronauts have to do. Sometimes they're in the sky, other times they're up in space. Amy's Aviation. 
airport. <laughs> well, if you love planes, it's the best place to be. I love watching the crew walking past. It's fun to try and work out what their jobs are. Flight attendants have smart matching uniforms and every airline has a different style. Pilots are easy to spot as many wear peaked caps and both men and women have very smart blazer jackets with shiny buttons and strips on their sleeves to indicate how important they are. Did you know most planes here have two pilots? But for really long flights, like the ones going to Australia, they might have three or even four. It's really important to have more than one so they can take it in turns to fly the plane so that no one gets too tired. They do a lot more than just flying the plane, though. Let's take a look at what the pilots do. The next flight to Sydney is leaving from gate 14. The plane is now ready for boarding. It's the pilot's job to make sure the plane is safe and running as it should and that the flight goes smoothly. This means a load of work before the plane's even left the gate. At the start of his shift, the pilot needs to gather all the information about the route he will be flying and to make a flight plan. It's important he or she gets information on the weather too. It's worth knowing if there's bad weather expected en route. Next is to brief the crew on the flight ahead and anything important, like if there's some bad weather expected because it might mean the flight is a bit of a bumpy one. He or she also makes sure they know basic stuff, like when the flight will leave and arrive. It's important that the crew know this because passengers will want to know. It's time to get the plane ready. The next job is to start the auxiliary power system. The plane might have enormous engines, but until they're airborne, they can't make the lights come on or heat up the food. Another pilot will make lots of checks and inspections to make sure the aircraft controls are working as they should. When everything looks great, it's time for the passengers to come on board. Often, one of the pilots will supervise the boarding, so you might see them when you step on the plane. Once all the passengers are on board, the pilots make sure the steps are disconnected and talk on the radio to ground control. When they have the all clear, they'll be ready to do the part we know about, finally getting to fly the plane. Now, if being a pilot sounds like a cool job, what about being an astronaut? How are they different to pilots? Three, two, one... Okay, yeah, I know, a pilot flies a plane, an astronaut flies a spacecraft or rocket. It sounds like it must be a really glamorous and exciting job, doesn't it? But most astronauts only spend a week or two in space. The rest of the time is spent on the ground, training or having meetings. So actually, it's pilots who fly planes who get to do a lot more flying. So what do astronauts do? Well, if they're on a mission, there are lots of jobs. Some astronauts are mission specialists who fly or navigate the spacecraft. In other words, they are pilots. Other astronauts are payload specialists who are in charge of equipment that's launched into space. What these astronauts do depends on what the payload is. Maybe this mission is taking equipment to the International Space Station or perhaps conducting experiments on board. Another job is making repairs. Perhaps there's a broken satellite that needs fixing. They might use a robotic arm or computers to get things working again. Or just use tools in the old-fashioned way. On the International Space Station, astronauts spend much of their time keeping it in tip-top condition, both inside and outside. Almost daily, they take spacewalks to tidy up. One of the most important jobs that all astronauts have to do is make sure they look after themselves. 
They might not spend very long in space, but it is a tough environment for human bodies. They have to exercise every day and ensure they stay healthy. With all those jobs to do, astronauts never get bored. Anyway, how could you be bored in space? <laughs> Both astronauts and pilots have pretty cool jobs, if you ask me. If you can't make up your mind which sounds better, why not be both? Many astronauts are pilots too. Shocks away! Amy's Aviation, with support from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Find out more about aviation at funkinslive.com forward slash aviation. That was the last episode of Amy's Aviation. So we'll have another series. Can't wait for that next time on the podcast. If you've missed any so far, or if you want to hear them again just then, you can listen to the full Amy's Aviation series over at funkidslive.com, wherever you get your podcasts, or on the free Fun Kids app too. While you're there, we've got tons of other brilliant Fun Kids podcasts about all different kinds of topics for you. You can get them on Google, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your shows from. Also, remember, if you've got a question that you want answered next week on the podcast, just record it as a voice note fire it over to me on the free fun kids app fun kids we are a children's radio station from the uk you can listen all around the country on your dab digital radio on that free fun kids app and at funkidslive.com i'm james stewart and in saving planet earth i'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialed to try and save our planet led of course by your questions Hi James, I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. (laughs) This is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts.